Welcome to the Gen X Movie Show. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown, Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, it is like snowing really hard right now, and I don't think anyone is going to be uh, wanting to go out and uh, uh, experience the dairy block right now. But when it's okay and you feel safe and you feel vaccinated, go to, go to Blanchard Family Wines in the middle of the dairy block, downtown Denver. Get yourself some 2017 Cabernet, which is really good. Um, you could also try the... Uh, partnerships that they have with Western Slope uh, wineries called Restoration Storm Cellars. They are all excellent quality wines from a local Colorado business that really needs your support during this time. Um, I, I think all of them were just, it's, we're starting to crawl ourselves or way our way out folks. We're getting there. Uh, we just a, a little more time and we will be out. And what we need to do is support our local businesses, go down and get yourself some excellent wine or go to bfwdenver.com, pick yourself up a bottle. Uh, they do delivery shipment, or you can pick up curbside. They also got virtual wine tastings, which are insanely popular. You sometimes have to book a month or two out. So go there to bfwdenver.com and pick yourself up a bottle or book yourself a virtual wine tasting today. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you don't go in or you talk to them, tell them Jeff Morton from CSU Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest Gen X movie show. And if you couldn't tell based on that synth-laden um, intro, we are going to talk to you today about my, probably my favorite director of all time, uh, the man who embodies cool more than any director on the planet. It is one John Carpenter. And joining me, as he often does, in fact, basically, I would at this point call him my, my permanent co-host on this, <laughs> on, the, on the Gen X movie show. It is my friend who uh, is in Somewheresville, Colorado, currently not getting the snow that I currently am in, in Denver. It is Magnus. Hello, Magnus. Hey, permanent co-host, PCH, I like it. PCH, that's exactly. I'm going to put that after, after your name. Magnus, PCH. Um, <laughs> um, so you, you and I have been talking about this podcast for a while. By the way, that, was, uh, that intro was from John Carpenter's new album. And it's weird to say that about a, a director, uh, a man who's known for directing, but it was from his new album called Lost Themes 3, and the song's called Alive After Death. 
Um, and of course, if you are, know anything about John Carpenter, that is basically typical John Carpenter uh, music right there. Um, when you think you know about, what about, about that piece of music, Morty, hmm. is it, it, for me, it evokes the music of Suspiria, which hmm. I know you and I talked about in a previous episode. That's right. I know you know that movie, but I definitely got a dancer walking through an empty hallway with weird colors vibe from that tune. Yeah, I, get, I get the leaving the airport uh, <laughs> music, <Yeah. laughs> the sliding doors open, and <laughs> wasn't that uh, Goblin who did that music? That, yep. uh, that, yeah. Um, so when you think of John Carpenter, I mean, just your overall view as, as someone who has watched his movies, you know, going back many years, when you think of John Carpenter, what, what, what comes to mind? Uh, is there something that, uh, that, is there something that just stands out to you about, about John Carpenter and his movies? The first thing that I can think of is, um, I feel a little sorry for him right. because I don't think he had the career he th probably thought he was going to have and probably deserved. Right. Um, I think his talent and his um, identity as a filmmaker were so strong, and yet he couldn't really break out of that genre filmmaker category. Um, you know, I, I think there was a brief moment there after Starman where it looked like he might have been the new Spielberg, which, you know, people were sort of saying about him for a brief right. moment. Right. And then it just never happened. And then, you know, the 90s and the 2000s, it was kind of diminishing returns. And anytime you see a once great filmmaker descend into making Trek, a la George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just sad. But unlike those other directors, he never really had, I don't think, that moment where he was the man i mean for me he is but right do you know what i mean i think there's that sense in his mind at least of an unfulfilled destiny uh i would describe john carpenter as the greatest hindsight director in in motion picture history because there is no there's not a single filmmaker i have ever come across whose movies have benefited with, with from hindsight as much as John Carpenter. Um, some of his movies that weren't, weren't roundly uh, applauded at the time are now regarded as absolute 100% stone cold classics. And I'm at one end for John Carpenter, that's gotta be immensely frustrating. And at the other end, that has to be somewhat satisfying. Um, he said recently that uh, the quote was when he's talking about his movies finally getting recognition years after they were released. He said, well, he said, at least they're not telling you you're a piece of shit. <laughs> that's, a, that's such a John Carpenter yeah. actor too. <laughs> so grumpy. In <laughs> it's so grumpy. But when you think about his beginnings as a, uh, as a, as a, U film student at USC and getting some very key friends along the way. Um, one of them is Dan O'Bannon who uh, starred in his first movie, um, Dark Star, who co-wrote his first movie too. Um, and acted in it. And acted <laughs> and was just, uh, he, he later wrote Alien, came up yeah, with the concept of and wrote Alien. <laughs> And so, and I think Carpenter might say that maybe borrowed a little something from Dark Star for that alien script. 
Um, 100%, particularly, and we can start off with Darkstar, particularly the whole space trucker thing that they, that was completely ripped off from Darkstar. And the two, Dan O'Bannon and uh, uh, John Carpenter, kind of had a falling out. And mm-hmm. I think it was largely due to Alien. Um, but there is uh, something about Darkstar that is kind of silly. Well, not something. Uh, the, the main protagonist in Darkstar is a, is a or, or antagonist, is a, is a beach ball alien, which is, which is kind of shows you how cheap the film was. But at the same time, it was an interesting film. It was John Carpenter attempting to do space comedy, basically, is what it yeah. was. When you look back at Dark Star, I mean, what is your impression? Like, it just, does it just, did it come across to you like this is basically a student film? Yeah, I mean, I think so. For me, it's, a, it's very analogous to THX, mm-hmm. you know, George Lucas's student film that they, he then turned into a feature length, big budget. And I think it's noteworthy for me. I, I like Dark Star, but for me, it's more noteworthy in that you can see the talent shining through the DIY effects and and you you know in both of those student films you, you look at it and you go okay this is someone with ideas and if they get a little money they might be dangerous right. and unlike george lucas carpenter never really got the money <laughs> to make to, to really uh well not, i wouldn't say never but um i feel like carpenter has kind of scraped for budget for his most of his career maybe some really key exceptions but um the the talent's really great the the sense of humor is great um the lived in universe is really great the sense that this is these are real people and um living in a real environment is great and you know i think carpenter would say or i've heard him say yeah that wasn't wasn't meant to be like that necessarily but that it just looked like that because that was the cheap way we could do it and it ended up being oh, a huge part of the charm of it. Right. You know, uh, John Carpenter is the key of making $10 look like a million dollars. And and I think that's some of his genius. As, and I would, I would call it a genius because there's very few low-budget filmmakers who can make a low-budget picture look like it had some money behind it. And Definitely. a lot of that has to do with the just the general directing talent he was very influenced by 50s sci-fi monster films and westerns like howard hawks yeah. films and john houston films or, and not john houston uh john ford films and you can tell that uh, there's a lot of very recurring themes that crop up in his movies going to his next film in particular assault on precinct uh, precinct 13 which is basically which is, a modern retelling of uh, Rio Bravo. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so in that vein. Um, yeah, kind of like how uh, the Magnificent Seven was basically Seven Samurai mm-hmm. transferred to a different genre. I like that Assault on Precinct Thirteen is basically Rio Bravo taken to an urban environment and transported in time. It's, it makes for a really interesting play, and it's so gritty and so brutal. And I think this is maybe the first time where you see Carpenter getting the reputation of being bleak. You hear that a lot about his movies, is that they're philosophically bleak. Right. Um, I'm thinking especially about that scene where the little girl gets killed and yes. how shocking that was to people. 
100%. And that scene, I think he, he has said uh, repeatedly that he may, if he had to go back, he would take out that scene. Uh, because in his, in, in, in hindsight, it didn't add anything to what the, the, the assault was. It just maybe added to how brutal the gang was that, uh, that was going to be assaulting the, the derelict, uh, precinct that was being closed. I tell you what, though, there is, um, there's some great action set pieces in assault on precinct 13. And that's, that movie was a, um, ostensibly a success in Europe, which um, kind of was surprising because it wasn't here in, in the United States. Um, but it was the movie that really was his first non-student film movie. And it kind of set the template for what he would start doing going forward. Um, and when we're talking about John Carpenter, we're talking about a guy who directs uh, what is known as genre films, and he, I think he himself hates that label. I would, in fact, I know for a fact he does. But in in reality, what he was able to do in melding westerns and uh, action slash horror and science fiction was was to bring a lot of the siege elements that come with uh, western films, particularly of Howard Hawks, um, onto a different kind of way of looking at them, particularly with Assault on Precinct 13. If you notice in that, and one of the best parts of Assault on Precinct 13 is that you can't see the gang's faces. They They are obscured, they are faceless, but it's menacing. And the assault is just, it's just an onslaught that keeps going and going and going and gets, you know, more brutal as it goes along. But that was a, a, a play on what was happening specifically in Rio Bravo, but in a lot of Westerns where there is a siege element to them. Yeah, including Magnificent Seven and a lot of them, definitely. The, you know, when he said later that he would have taken, that he should have taken that scene out, or if he had to do it again, he would have taken that scene out. Um, Sam Raimi said something very similar about a scene in Evil Dead. Um, this the infamous tree rape scene where mm-hmm. the tree comes alive and rapes the girl. And yeah. I've heard him say, you know, in retrospect, that didn't add anything to the film. And I can see why people were offended by that. But, you know, it's interesting in both instances, though, you can see a young filmmaker taking chances right. in a way that an older, more mature filmmaker might play it safe. Right. And even though maybe that one scene is incongruous or whatever, the sum of total of being able to take chances makes a great movie, I think. A really great movie like Evil Dead or Assault on Precinct 13. I mean, the action in Assault is great. It's mm-hmm. very well stated. You would never have thought he had never directed an action movie before. I mean... Well, he's very good at that. He's... And, 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 and creating... He got better as a, as a actor's director as he, as he proceeded through his, his career. But he was always good at knowing how to create tension um, and create it. And as we would find out in some of his masterpiece films, creating an atmosphere. And that led him to get kind of the, the, the quote unquote success. And that's, you know, when you direct a low budget independent film, you don't often get the, uh, the back end royalty rate, what they call points. 
um, on the back end of it. So you basically make the film and then whoever produced the film owns the film after that. So you really don't retain the, the, the fame and the money that comes from that later. And we see that actually come into to stark reality with his next film, uh, where a fin financier has an idea about something called the babysitter, like uh, like a babysitter uh, being menaced by a serial killer. It's called, and uh, the initial title of this movie was called the, the Babysitter Murders, I believe. The Babysitter, yep. <laughs> and. Lo and behold, it turns into something completely else. And that movie is called Halloween. The movie that completely changed horror filmmaking for the next 12 years, basically. Um, and when you look back at Halloween and this low-budget slasher film as it became, because there were slasher films before. I mean, we, we, we talked about, you and I talked about Black Christmas. Um, mm -hmm. Psycho was probably the first quote unquote slasher film, although that depends on your definition. Um, but there was others like that. But what was it about Halloween that kind of set the direction in a different course uh, that so thoroughly in 1978 when it came out? Yeah, a couple of things, I think. I mean, it, the first thing you can say about Halloween is I think that it created a, an entire genre because other than the ones you mentioned, Black Christmas and Psycho, it's really hard to find an antecedent. Um, and certainly he was a fan of Black Christmas and um, uh, probably had been inspired by it on some level, but it is a totally different piece. Number one, for a couple of reasons, number one, um, the music. You take the music from Halloween out of Halloween, and it's kind of like watching Star Wars without John Williams' score. It's right. it's half of the effect, I think. And we got to give Carpenter credit for that. He, he wrote that score as well. Um, and what's astonishing about Halloween, too, is how low the body count is. It's what, five people die in the course of the movie? Right. Not all of them on screen, even. Yeah. And, and it's just there's almost no blood in it so you have a slasher movie that's terrifying with almost no blood where very few people get killed it's so incongruous with what came after it uh and so you know it's all atmosphere it's all tension it's um it's all music it's all and here's here's another thing i'll say about that makes it better it makes it better than what came after the faceless mask that Michael Myers wears, you know, it, it was a happy accident. Again, it's one of those things that can only come out of DIY filmmaking. They just needed a mask for this guy and they went and they just found apparently a uh, Captain Kirk mask at yeah, a well, hardware yeah. store. From, a, yeah, they, it, was, it was a William Shatner specific mask. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they widened the eye holes and spray painted it white. And holy shit, totally terrifying because it's so blank. You can just project whatever your fears are on that mask. And uh, so all of those things combined to um, to make it just super effective. I mean, it still gets to me to say I watch it every Halloween and it's one of the best horror films ever made. No question. Right. And it, and, and it, it, it became something I, I, like, 
another tribute to John Carpenter, and you pointed it out right at the start, his composing, his, his scoring of these films. He did that on Assault on Precinct 13 to a lesser extent. But one of the reasons he, he and, and he has talked about this um, in many of his interviews, one of the reasons he was doing it was just because it was cheaper. It was yeah. cheaper for him to score the film because he knew how to do it. Um, he said he would just set out time at the end of the filmmaking production to go back in and score the film. Um, Assault on Precinct 13 is not as effective, but it's still good. Um, yeah. Halloween is iconic in a, in a way that, once again, it's hard to hear an 80s movie horror movie without a synth laden soundtrack a a very john carpenter-esque i mean he he has said on his uh the way he came up with the halloween theme was it was just uh something his dad taught him about keeping time you know it was like an action yeah yeah and it was it was just that i think right so he grew up around music and been in a rock band, I think, in, in Kentucky and uh, USC. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one of those instances where someone having an additional filter, he had a filmmaking filter and he understood music. And so to be able to combine them in a way that most directors can't really was an advantage for him. Well, and he was a frustrated rock star. He, mm-hmm. wanted, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to be in a band. He just, and you can tell. And you can totally tell from the way he directs his films and the way he does his music. He is an auteur in, the, in a different way. He is a, 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 an auteur in, in a, who, who like wants to be more Ozzy Osbourne than he does, uh, you know, Fellini. You know, <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is John Carpenter. And that comes across so well in... Uh, Halloween. It, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Donald Pleasance is in it. Getting Don, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, was probably another thing that really uh, was a stroke of genius in this. And a lot of it was mm-hmm. because you know he was thinking uh, Janet Lee, uh, Tony Curtis. You know this is probably going to help the film. Um, but it ended well, up. Not- yeah, and it ended up benefiting big time and. Uh, you know, Donald Pleasance was a fan. His daughter was a fan of Assault on Precinct 13, apparently. And that is why he ended up in, in uh, Halloween. And I think having Donald Pleasance actually was what gave the movie a very low budget movie credibility. Oh, it's, it's like Alec Guinness in the first Star Wars. You needed someone with gravitas to pull it together. Absolutely. Um, and my, I, you know, to, to just give a nod to the late great Donald Pleasance. Right. The word is is that after the last scene of the movie, where Michael Myers falls out the the window, and then he Loomis looks down and he's not there. Mm-hmm. He, apparently, he said to Carpenter, "How do you want me to play this?" And Carpenter's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, there's two ways I could do it. I could look down and be." like surprise like where is he i just shot him how come he's not there or i can look down and be like i knew he wasn't going to be there and carpenter said apparently let's do both and they did it and the one they used was loomis is not surprised that michael survived which is genius yes. that's why 
that's why you get a good an actor of that caliber who can bring that kind of subtlety to it. Good actor. Um, anyone who remembers him from what was it, Doctor No or Goldfinger? Which one of those? Um, there yeah, is. He, uh, he was Goldfeld. That's right. And he was uh, the Great Escape, which is a great performance by him. Played a blind guy in it. Um, he he just lent that credibility to a movie that is is you know once again coming back to that word genre defining movie mm-hmm. and genre yeah one hundred percent and it's interesting what he did after Halloween and I think you're seeing the results of him being a low budget filmmaker. I believe Halloween was made for about two hundred thousand dollars, and two hundred fifty thousand. And he, a lot of filmmakers, you make that, and you, and the film ended up grossing something like seventy million dollars, something like that, worldwide. And eventually, into nineteen seventy nine, and you know, but Carpenter ends up directing two TV movies after that, and which is really interesting. You would think he would be bathing in success after something yeah. like that, you know, but he ends up doing two TV movies. Now, the first one he does is a movie called Elvis, uh, which is obviously the life of Elvis and which uh, he met Kurt Russell on, yep. which is the, 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 the partnership, the, the marriage that is, uh, gave us so many great moments. The um, the Robert De Niro to his Scorsese, the Johnny Depp to his Tim Burton, right. definitely a partnership that would be a lot of fruit. And I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen that Elvis movie, but even in that movie, you can see a lot of interesting and creative shots and set pieces. Um, but you're right, it is. And I think he probably thought after Halloween, the offers were going to pour in. But Halloween was a slow burn. Yeah. I mean, it did well. But, you know, back in those days, it would open up in this city. And, and if it did well in that city, then they would open it up to another city. Right. And so, you know, it kind of traveled across the country and built. Um, it took maybe a year or two before it became the phenomenon that it was. But that's all word of mouth. That's mm-hmm. all people loving it because there was no marketing budget for that movie. Nope. No, particularly uh, with low-budget films, and since you're selling out to the distributor, Basically, you're you're. It's not in your control, and you don't have a massive studio that's doing uh, what you call a wide release, like it like was pioneered with Jaws uh, three years earlier. You you're not seeing that like we're going to hit everyone at the same time during and and make as much money as possible on this. It was more of a uh, regional thing, as you pointed out. A lot of late night yeah. movie things because it got. A, a dumped in the grindhouse thing for a while and uh but it ended up being coming eventually and i think into 1980 even a phenomena like i said it made about 70 million and he never saw any benefit from that and if you if you ever hear him talk about front halloween it's always tinged with bitterness but of course some of that is just carpenter's personality um <laughs> But there's that tinge of bitterness there. It's very similar to Wes Craven. You know, when Wes Craven did the first Nightmare movie, Nightmare on Elm Street, that was also groundbreaking and a really great Mm -hmm. idea, really well executed. 
and for which Craven was not paid very much and did not own a piece of the movie and did not own any of the sequels and had a, became a little bitter about it. I think, to, in fairness to New Line, who did the, the Nightmare movies, I think they actually did come to an agreement with Craven later to make him whole, which was cool of him. But yeah. unfortunately, once again, Carpenter was not as lucky as some of his fellow filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> he was not. And after doing Somebody's Watching Me, which is a... Actually, a good movie. I don't know if you, I don't know if anyone has ever seen somebody's watching it. It's a TV movie he did, uh, basically about a woman who was being stalked, and uh, it's a very suspect for, especially for a TV movie, extremely suspenseful movie. Um, and through after that, um, two years later, he emerges with uh, another movie, another horror movie, kind of a ghost story movie, called The Fog, with his future wife. Adrian Barbeau. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting that there's a lot of people who do not like The Fog. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, but she's kind of, you can tell that she was kind of uh, I'll help you out kind of thing. Apparently she was having a hard time getting some roles, so she was yeah. he gave her that role in that one. And you could kind of tell it's an, because her, her role with Tom Atkins in that is kind of random. <laughs> it's yeah. That's the way you put it. <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels tacked on that role for sure it is but i have always liked the fog because i think it's an effective ghost story if you like ghost stories um i think i think it is it is creepy but it's not horrific um there's some good special effects in it first appearance of rob Bottin. uh he actually plays the lead ghost mm. pirate because uh, he's big and, you know, a young kid who was doing makeup effects. He was the protege of Rick Baker, uh, the guy who uh, did the uh, werewolf in uh, American Werewolf in London. And he uh, ends up doing these kind of really creepy effects when they, that were just kind of shrouded in obviously fog. Um, but when you look back at the fog, do you think that was the 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 like a like a step down from Halloween I think I think so I think it's not as successful creatively as Halloween but you know I mean I think John Carpenter would agree with that he, yeah. he has said that that was the only time in his career where he had he finished a movie watched the final cut and realized it wasn't working and they had to write and choose some additional scenes some of what they shot ended up being some of the really good stuff a lot of more with the ghosts and mm -hmm. Uh, the opening scene with the old man at the fire telling the story. So what he, I think he, his instincts were right. It did need more of that. Um, it doesn't quite hang together. I actually watched it again this Halloween, this last Halloween. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hang together as well for me, although there are individual scenes in it which are brilliant. But right. as a whole, for me, it's not quite as successful. It's kind of a, it's like a PG-13 but there was no PG-13 back when that came out. But it's kind of a PG-13 yeah. ghost story with, you know, uh, Hal Holbrook, Janet Lee, um, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau, who, like I said, but it's probably the movie's more notable for Carpenter hooking up with uh, Adrian Barbeau. But yeah, I think, I think his, uh, he wasn't thinking with his... Uh, Rick Brain when he cast her. For me, she's terribly miscast in that role. Right. Um, well, and she's completely separate from 
everyone else the entire time. She's yeah. in, in that light tower radio station. Huh? <laughs> it's like he cast her because he wanted a banger. I don't think the movie um, benefits from her being in that role. She might have been better in a better role, but I just, I, I don't buy her as that character. She's not nearly as good as she was in Creepshow, that's for sure. Um, uh, that, yes. <laughs> Monster in the crate. So, but that movie was a success. Uh, yeah. It was done for, I think, a million dollars, which was his biggest budget ever. And yeah. it made 20 something, 20, 23, 25 million, uh, which is a financial success. And so that kind of propelled him into the first, well, the second of his iconic films. Uh, a re reteaming, and this is, and by the way, we're in the decade of the 80s now. And this is really his golden years. And he's really yeah. starting to ramp up here. And you get the second of his iconic films, and that is Escape from New York. Um, a dystopian vision of New York as a prison, starring uh, his buddy Kurt Russell, um, Isaac Hayes, Donald Pleasance again, um, Harry, Dean. Harry, mm -hmm. Harry Dean Stanton, Ernest Borgnine, uh, a cab driver. Oh, uh, Ernest I always forget. <laughs> it is it is an interesting concept and a fun movie. Very fun movie. When you look back at um, uh, Escape from New York, do you think is this the, did that set the template for all the '80s action movies that came after that? Well, I think um, along with Blade Runner, it was very very influential for futuristic sci-fi for the next decade or more. Um, it definitely set a tone for that kind of world building. I, I watched it again recently as well. And I've, I gotta say, it's much more boring than I remembered it being. <laughs> I think it's a better idea than it is a movie. You know, the, the beginning is great. The setup is great. The ending is great. But there's a whole, there's whole chunks in the middle of the movie where nothing really happens. It's just Kurt Russell kind of walking through empty city sets and not a lot happens. I mean, it's definitely a slower pace mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a modern audience would expect it to have more wall-to-wall -wall action. Right, right, right. And I, I, I was thinking about it because I forgot Lee Van Cleef um, as, as uh, I forgot his character's name, but um, it is, it is, it is, you could tell, you see elements of things like Commando in it. You see elements of, I mean, Snake Plissken, the character, is the macho 80s guy. And oh, I do, I, I weigh and yeah. Yes. And he's got the, he's basically, and, and if anyone uh, watches and you have, you're listening to this, you haven't watched uh, Escape from New York, um, Kurt Russell's basically doing Clint Eastwood the entire film i mean i mean not basically it's <laughs> yes. just straight up doing Facebook impression right but kind of tells you the tongue-in-cheek nature and a how vibed together carpenter and uh kurt russell were because they mm -hmm. they just had this synergistic I, I you know kind of notion of what they could do together and yeah. while it is not a tremendous movie it is a it like says boring, but it's fun. I mean, in hindsight, yeah. boring. I thought it was more, and I'm I'm with you. I thought it was a lot more action packed than it was. Um, but isn't that interesting that we remember it having more action than it is? I think that's a 
a good example of if you have a great idea and you build a world that people like, right? That that's half the battle, right? Because uh, I love the movie, even though the middle part is more boring than I remembered. But I don't remember those middle parts. I remember the setup and the world and Kurt Russell and Snake, the character, and all those crazy characters that he meets along the way. Well, and uh, you have Donald Pleasance, the 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 British president, um, which <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which in is... an egg. British president egg. <laughs> which maybe that that that's when people I talk to when I talk to people about Escape from New York they always want it. British president like just just go with it. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> but again, when we remember earlier we mentioned about he he had a reputation for being philosophically bleak. Mm-hmm. There's a scene Escape from New York where Snake Plissken, who's ostensibly the protagonist of the film just casually looks over and is watching two ruffians rape a woman. And he doesn't even bat an eye. He just keeps moving. Right. Right. Just the brutality of that world from that one look and shrug is, um, is unsettling to people. It is. And it's nihilistic. There's a, there's a nihilism right. about it, but it's particularly about, you know, you have Isaac Hayes, his character is just, he's tormenting the president and the president gets his own at the end. And it's just, it's, it's by the end of it, you're like, this is a bleak, it's a bleak dystopian picture is what that, that movie is with some campy humor in it. Yeah. And it's, and it's, an, it, and it's interesting how it sits together. And I think that a lot of that has to do with Kurt Russell and uh, John Carpenter um, and, and Ernest Borgnine. Um, and but that once again was the, an even bigger success than the fog was and it's not tremendous but it was bigger and he's okay now he's becoming a what 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 you would call bankable director so universal has this idea to remake a movie that they did in the 50s called uh thing from another world which was based on a John W. Campbell, which was his pseudonym, I forget what his real name was, um, novella called Who Goes There, which was heavily inspired in turn by At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. So there was like levels of inspiration here, but uh, this thing for another world was, uh, it, it, it's, he's not listed as a director, but by all intents and purposes, Howard Hawks was the one who directed Hawks things in yeah. another world. And you come into this universal property. Now, when, you, when you're talking about universal, they own a lot of monster movies. Um, they own the, uh, uh, what was it? The Frankenstein series. They own uh, the, the Drag Pack movie. The, the uh, Wolfman. Wolf yeah. They yeah. just, they're called the universal monsters is what they were called. And uh, they wanted to remake Thing from Another World. Now, apparently, Toby Hooper, was the, for the guy who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was the first director of this remake of the thing. But they did not like what the studio did not like what he, his treatment was for it. So they let him go. And they called John Carpenter fresh off the success of Escape from New York. And you get to what I consider, not to, the, not to spoil uh, anything, but what I consider to be his masterpiece. 
a a gory body horror paranoid uh, masterpiece of a film in called the thing um, would you agree that that is his best his best movie definitely it's um it's a masterpiece it's his best movie it's one of the best if not the best horror movie of all time it's the best horror movie of the 80s for sure mm -hmm. um <clears throat> i think that is where all the elements that made him, make him a great director come together and he's just at his creative peak he's such in control of every nuance in that film and he just plays on the audience's emotions and fears so exquisitely um and it's and it's also nihilistic it takes all that nihilism that's been the elements of his other films and just ramps it up to a hundred and i love it i watch it every halloween it's great it is one of the most and and it, it is this is another hindsight film because this movie uh not to bury the lead here but this movie um bombed so heavily that yeah. it nearly destroyed john carpenter's career i mean and Kurt Russell, out, too. Yeah, Kurt Russell. I mean, it was, it was, it was that, I mean, basically, uh, Vincent Canby, uh, from, uh, was it the New York, the New York times basically said it was, uh, violence porn and, mm -hmm. uh, Roger Ebert famously hated it. Um, there was just, no one liked it, but in, if you look at it now, the special effects are amazing for, for amazing. 1982, what Rob Botine accomplished uh was um just for someone who was like i think 23 at the time uh was, maybe not even he was living in the studio i mean he was like he worked so hard he had a nervous breakdown and the stuff that he invented was i mean he literally invented new ways of doing things um just amazing groundbreaking special effects to this day he um his nervous breakdown has actually what gave us um because uh stan winston they brought him in and he did the dog pen uh monster and which is amazing it was absolutely amazing the first time i saw the thing i was really young first time i saw the thing in fact here's another here's a good story for you um go into these okay uh, people who are listening to this if you are younger than 30 you won't this you won't relate to this went into the video store uh to rent movies and the first thing i remember seeing is that is that um cover of the vhs of the thing which is the guy when the in this in the with the hooded suit uh, snow uh, jacket with light coming out of his of the yeah. of the hole even that creep the shit out of me and then i see parts of the movie and you know you're, you're pretty young at i'm pretty young at this time and it scared the living shit out of me and even to this day it is really really unsettling the, the movie creates he creates an atmosphere in the thing which if those for those who don't know it's about uh an alien that crash lands on uh the planet earth a hundred thousand years ago and it basically, it assimilates people and replicates them. 
And rather than doing it in an invasion of the body snatchers kind of way, which basically was a retelling of who goes there, um, he, it, it is done in a horrific body horror way. And then it ramps up the, the paranoia to 10 throughout the entire movie. And I, I was talking to a friend of mine about it. You and he never was, know. You never know which, who the alien has gotten to. And the people, the yeah. characters don't know who among them are really themselves right. either. So there's this double unknown component of it. It's just great. I was talking to a friend of mine who'd never seen it. He, he, and I told him to watch it. And he said, I, I didn't like the movie. I said, why? He said, it stressed me out. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. you know, it's what it's supposed to do. It, it's a stressful movie because of, it does it so well. And he just, yeah. it is just, to me, uh, um, it's just absolute masterpiece. It was made on a budget for ten of $10 million. Um, and I believe it only made 12 at the box office. Uh, yeah, well, it had the unfortunate, and this is sort of famous, <laughs> it had the unfortunate luck to come out, I think, in the same summer, or maybe even a week after E.T. had come out. Right. Which was, so you have Spielberg, Feel Good, Touchy Feely, Q Alien. And then this nightmare, bleak winterscape from Carpenter. And I, I can't help but think that that was a part of it. Um, and, I, you know, I do feel bad for him because I think he thought that was going to be his huge break into, like, top-tier directing, you know, status. Mm -hmm. And instead, it was a serious financial reversal. By the way, all credit to Kurt Russell. The whole movie is perfectly cast, but Kurt Russell's performance is a tour de force. I think it's Kurt Russell's best performance. And oh, so good. that's a huge reason for that movie's success. And I think Kurt Russell wasn't even supposed to play that role. I think, um, you know, he and Carpenter had become friends and Carpenter was having a hard time casting that role of McCready. Called up his friend Kurt Russell. was like, hey, I'm trying to cast this. Do you know anyone that would be good for it? Anyone you could commend? And Kurt Russell's like, well, you know, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably maybe a little offended that he hadn't been asked, but anyway, <laughs> think, think, and maybe the reason he didn't ask him is because he didn't want to be one of those directors that has the same person in the movies every time. Right. But it ended up being the perfect fit, you know. And Kurt Russell ends up being in a interesting, almost a remake of it, in a in a western way with uh, uh, what was it, Hateful Eight, it was kind of a remake of the thing. Uh, in a, it, that's at least the way I look at it because it had a lot of the same elements of, of that movie. Um, and speaking of the Hey Flight, Marty, uh, Carpenter did do some of the music for the thing, but for the first time, I think he hired a famous composer, Enrico, um, what's his name? Uh, from the any, West, Enrico. Any, Ennio Morricone. Yeah. And he, they, Morricone ended up composing a bunch of music that Carpenter ended up not using and doing some different stuff himself. Mm -hmm. Years later, that unused Marconi music was used by Tarantino in The Hateful Eight. In The Hateful Eight. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. And, and, and Tarantino has said many times how much uh, he been loves that movie. And I think, yeah. I, I think Robert Rodriguez has said the same thing. It's, it's, it's that circle of your director that really understood how good that movie was and but it complete and almost destroyed his career. I you would it, he is still 
and still talk bitter. about bitterness about it. He is still bitter about it because of the savaging he got. He said, no one likes to be told that they're a poor, a, a violence porn merchant. You know, no one yeah. likes to like, someone, no one wants to like have some guy come up to him and say, Hey, you motherfucker. You know, it's just, that's how he felt. And, and I, I think uh, the reason for that, I think, I think a big reason for that reaction is the ending. Right. The Which, ending for a lot of people is infuriating to me it's genius yeah, it's great. but i have actually watched that movie with people who at the end and go what the fuck <laughs> they're they're not going to tell us what happens uh so that was a bold choice to end it that way and i think for a lot of people that didn't work and and i've i've seen people get mad at that ending i've seen that reaction <laughs> I, I i love the last line why don't we sit here oh. and wait see, what, see happens. what happens which is which is great. That's the only way you could could have ended that. That's the only way you could end that. And it is genius, absolutely genius. I love that movie. I watch it every year, like you. It is it is an absolute uh, stone cold classic. And it's it's a shame about what happened with it because you come to the next film. He was basically up for directing Firestarter, and. That was taken away from him because that movie bombed because the thing bombed so heavily that it was taken away from. Him. And you know, you think about 1982, uh, Magnus. You got Blade Runner, you've got ET, you've got the thing. Uh, I think Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan came out that year. Uh, you have Tron. That was the year of science fiction, <laughs> essentially. It was a great year. It was For sure. Man. Maybe the peak year for like science fiction fantasy uh, movies. I believe did did Kroll come out in in 1982 as well? Um, and uh, it, it is anyway. So he ends up like having to do whatever comes next. And what comes to next comes next uh, after losing Firestarter, which is a Stephen King movie, is Christine. Um, and you and I touched on Christine when we talked about movies of Stephen King. I like the movie. Um, I like I like the fact that John Carpenter took away the the personification of of the person who was haunting Christine and just made it a malevolent car. I thought that was, in my view, a good decision. And uh, I think it's a good film. It, it, it's another film that made money for him. I mean, it's a it's another in the line of John Carpenter films that are made for little money and made made a very very good profit. Another great score. Mm -hmm. It works perfectly with the movie. I would say, I, and I do like Christine. That my one gripe about it is that the couple, the two leads, are are miscast with each other. Not that either of them are bad, but they just don't look like a couple. They have no chemistry. I didn't buy the anguish that she was in as he descends into this madness. So that's the one element of that film that doesn't work for me. I think if the, the two leads had had more real chemistry. That would have made it a lot more emotional, the transformation. But minor gripe, still very good. Absolutely. And and, we, and if you, anyone wants to hear our thoughts on Christine, uh, go listen to our, our Movies of Stephen King podcast, which we recorded a couple months ago. Um, but then he goes to a very, what we would describe as a out-of-left-field movie. It is a sci-fi romantic uh, jaunt road movie with uh jeff bridges and uh lady from uh 
Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> I forgot her name. Um, she, uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, it, it, Karen Allen? Yes, Karen Allen. Yes, Karen Allen. Um, Starman, which is the only yeah. movie that John Carpenter ever did that uh, got an Oscar nomination. Yeah. For Jeff Bridges yeah. for best uh, best actor, best supporting actor. Um, that's the only one he's ever had in his entire career that's ever been up for a nomination. It's an okay movie. I mean, I don't know what you think of uh, Starman. It's very eighties. It is. I I do I do like it. I haven't seen it in a while. Mm-hmm. It's not one that I act to frequently like some of the others that we talked about. But it is a very effective movie, and I think um, I think he's again trying to be get break into that Spielberg rank of directors. It's got a much more Spielbergian mm-hmm. vibe to it. The ending is is a sad ending, but it's bittersweet. It's not right. it's not happily ever after, but it's not bleak. We're all gonna die. Right. <laughs> Right, right. Um, they get to the crater, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's well cast, and um, it's basically a road trip movie, mm-hmm. uh, a kidnapping that turns into a love story, which a lot of feminists then and now decry, right? Mm-hmm. right. After there's that angle to it, I never really bought that. The whole thing, the whole reason she falls in love with him, to me, the creepiest part is that she falls in love with him because. He looks like her ex-husband who died. Right. So it's all kind of weirdness <laughs> as far as the relationship goes. But the actors really sell it. Um, so, I, yeah, I like it. Not as best, but definitely. Also, I, I don't know how much you know about the box office, but I think it was a success, but not the not the knockout blockbuster that he needed or yeah. thought it might be. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. He only, they probably only made about $30, $40 million and he, he, it just it should have been more... And it, it, that's the that's the uh, that's the gist of John Carpenter's career, which you you yeah. you, you and and you know we have, we'll hit just a highlight here. Big Trouble in Little China is a good movie. It's actually one of my favorites of the eighties. It's just it's goofy, it's goofy fun. Once again, Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. And this time doing impression instead of a Clint Eastwood impression. Yes, and he is the sidekick, and he doesn't know it. And that's the whole point of the movie. And it bombed so big. <laughs> it bombed yeah. so big. And you know what? I, I associate Big Trouble in Little China with, uh, what was that Fred, Fred Ward movie, uh, Remo Williams? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember Remo Williams. Yeah. To me, those two are like the same movie. Um, <laughs> they, 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 but but uh, Big Trouble in Little China is silly. It's a farce. And it's meant to be a farce, and I think people didn't didn't like it. The special effects in it are amazing, <laughs> but uh, it was a big budget movie that bombed so thoroughly that I believe that was his last studio picture. I think. I don't know, but I think the big problem with Big Trouble is people just don't know what to make of it. It's a comedy. It's hilarious. It's also science fiction. It's also a mystical thing. It's kind of, it's a real genre mashup is what they would call it, right? There's yeah. all sorts of different there. And um, I just think just people didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know what, they, what to expect. It's an action movie. Um, it's definitely a wink, wink at the audience. We know how silly this is. We're just having fun. 
But again, it just didn't land. I mean, I think as a film, it's very successful. It was a great find, mm-hmm. but just didn't wasn't wasn't that breakthrough that he was looking for and expecting. I think that's another movie people love now. That is a Big Trouble in Little China is another oh. hindsight loved movie, which is absolutely. He's got to hate. He's got to hate life, you know, because of us. Because all these people like his movies after they're twenty years after they're made, you know. But well, I think he knows that they're good. I mean, that's I think the gist of it. I think he knew that with the thing he had created a, a really special piece of work, right? And then to be bid for what you think is your best work. Imagine how that would go. That would be terrible. Right. So I don't blame him. Well, and then he ends up taking a very low budget thing, a budget deal with Alive Pictures, and he produces two movies after after that that I I I love both of these movies, uh, Prince of Darkness and They Live. They Live is the one that's most remembered of those two. They Live has Rowdy Roddy Piper in it and uh, Keith David. It's about basically about aliens masquerading as Republicans. Um, <laughs> That's basically, I, I, I think that's the gist of that movie. Uh, and people, it's another movie people love right now because it has the greatest fight scene in movie history. Um, again, the action is great. The social commentary is sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. Um, it's not my favorite John Carpenter film, but it, it is rewatchable. Like you can always go back to that, have fun with it. Prince of Darkness is another bizarre one. Also has Donald Pleasance as a priest. Right. I watched that again recently too, and not. I feel I put that in the same category of fog. The elements are all there. Doesn't quite hang together for me, even though there's scenes, individual scenes that are great. It's another mashup. It's like a combination of like a Satan worship movie with a sci-fi movie, kind of. It's weird. He's trying to combine math with uh, horror. Yeah, the devil, and it yeah. was, and 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 I, I, I did a, I did a long podcast on this uh, a couple of years ago, where I said it just, I appreciate what he was trying to do, it just didn't work. That's that's yeah. the that's, but I appreciate the idea and the idea. Oh, me and, too. And plus, and plus, it's got the guy from Simon and Simon in it, and I. <laughs> uh, that's not the most successful casting. <laughs> and the mustache Although, just drives me nuts. So. I do love the ending. The ending of Prince of Darkness is great. I wish the movie deserved that ending where the voice from the future is coming in through the TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Oh, so it's, it's so good. And, I, and I, it's one of his more forgotten ones. Speaking of forgotten, um, he takes a four-year break and then he comes back with Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase. Uh, that's a terrible movie. I don't know if you, <laughs> last time you saw it. That's a terrible movie. I... I, I- came out i mean i don't remember much about it except that i didn't like it it wasn't funny and it was started the series of flops for chevy chase uh that basically turned him into an also ran um then you go to possibly my favorite well he does a tv movie called bobby body bags which was supposed to be a uh, on showtime which was supposed to be like another tales from the dark side or uh tales from the crypt uh, one of those things where he plays a, a morgue, a guy in a morgue, uh, and, and there's all these vignettes uh, uh, playing out. And then one of them, the first one with a gas station, uh, a serial killer at a gas station, is actually really good. Uh, but it's it's nothing to write home about. Um, Not really. 
I never, I never go back to that. Yeah, but the next movie is one I rank up there with my favorites of John Carpenter, and it's a movie that deserves multiple watching. It is In the Mouth of Madness, oh, a, so a, a movie that I saw in the theater and scared the shit out of me, particularly with the, the, the kid on the bike. That part just oh, scared the living shit out of me. When you look back at it, and then we can just spend a couple minutes on that one. Many people regard that as John Carpenter's last good movie. Would you say, uh, would you agree with that? I, I, I wouldn't disagree. I would also say that he went out, if that's true, he went out with a bang. Mm -hmm. To me, that's his third masterpiece. I think right. he's made two, three genuine masterpieces, and that's one of them. I remember going to the theater with my girlfriend at the time, watching that movie, loving it, being really disturbed by it for days, going to see it again, and just really marveling at it and processing it, and then being really confused by the reviews, which were yeah. terrible. Yeah. I didn't yeah. get it. I was like, what are, what are they talking about? And again, he just gets this slamming from critics for this exquisitely crafted homage to Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft. And but I just, I don't, again, I just felt bad for him because that movie deserved much better than it got. Well, you have to appreciate H.P. Lovecraft to understand the movie. And I think that is where most critics probably are not H.P. Lovecraft readers. And a lot of the elements, the themes, now this isn't an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft, although they read direct lines from H.P. Lovecraft's short stories in the, in the uh, movie. But it is, it is thematically the, one of the most, one of the closest uh, movies I've seen to the spirit of an H.P. Lovecraft story. And I think that part there is what makes it genius. And you have to watch it a couple times to catch everything that's going on. The movie probably could have stood be, oh, to be longer. I, I would say that's my one criticism. It could have been longer. Yeah, it could have been longer. Um, I, I think John Carpenter has made the two best H.P. Lovecraft movies ever made. And neither of them were H.P. Lovecraft adaptations, The Thing and Malcolm Ender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I, um, I love it. Love it. I, I Sam Neill's great in it, by the way. Great casting. Oh, Sam Neill's, uh, that was genius. And apparently those guys got along really well from, because uh, Sam Neill was in, in Memoirs of a Visible Man, too. Uh, That's right. And also, I think, just recently been in Jurassic Park. Um, we, uh, I, I, I think we've, we've kind of, you know, Got to the point where he like hit this, but it was another financial failure. He made its money back and that was it. And you get to finally where his career, and we don't have to talk about these movies individually. I think there's some good elements in them, but you've got Children of, uh, uh, Children of the Damned, which sucked. Uh, but it's notable it for uh, Christopher Reeves' last walking performance. Um, there is... Uh, Escape from L.A., which, once again, oh, not oh. good. Uh, then you get Vampires, which actually has, that's the closest he's come to an actual Western, Vampires. I love Vampires myself. I, I do too. <laughs> I, I rewatch it every year. And, um, again, savaged by critics, didn't do well at the box office, 
but it's so fucking fun and it has so many great scenes. James Woods is the lead of the vampire killer and he's amazing. And um, I love this notion of this group of vampire hunters hired by the Catholic church to do the dirty work of the church. Yeah. And, but the church keeps on the arms like, you know, just kill our monsters for us, but we don't really want to be known to associate with you. That's a great premise. I love that premise. Right. And then you got Maximilian Schell as the, uh, as the, uh, uh, the priest or the, the cardinal. And uh, it's just James Woods. And uh, I, I just, I think that he set up a good, and it's, and it's a Western. Uh, which of the Baldwin brothers was in it? Um, I think that's Daniel. Daniel Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it, I think it's a fun, if you take it as not serious, it's, it's a fun movie. I am entertained by it every time I see it. It's an entertaining yeah. movie. No, it's, it's definitely rewatchable. My one complaint would be that they didn't set up the twist well enough for right. the Cardinal, big bad guy behind it. If he had had some more scenes and we had seen more of his relationship with Jack, that would have been a better payoff. Right. So that's my complaint. That's a structural complaint, but yeah. I love the vampire killing scene. That's all great stuff. And that is the first movie of his that never ma- didn't make money. That is the first movie of, of, of John Carpenter's that didn't actually make any money. Um, Brutal. And then you get to Ghosts of Mars, Ooh. which I remember being so disappointed when I saw that movie. <laughs> That's my, I, mean, I saw it in the movie theater and I'm like, oh my God. I was crushed. I was like, what was he thinking? And you could tell his heart wasn't in it. And that, and that is yeah. where you're getting to it. Maybe we could kind of bring the horse into the stall with this because the only other movie he did after that was The Ward. And that was not a great movie. It's got Amber Heard in it. It's kind of a, once again, it's kind of a ghost story movie. Um, but it's just, it's, when he half-asses it, you can tell. And yeah. he really half-assed it on Children of the Damned. And he half-assed it on Ghosts of Mars and the Board. And it's disappointing because he, in between those, he did uh, a hour-long spot for Masters of Horror called Cigarette Burns, which is brilliant. Really, which is the really good. Last great thing he did. Yeah, nice. Right. 2005. And that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Brutal and disturbing. But brilliant. Yeah. That was like, that was 16 years ago, if you can believe it. But there's two more, there's, there's two more things I think we need to touch on. Mm. Um, he has asked it way earlier than the late 90s collapse when he was asked to come back to do Halloween 2, way back in the, in 80, 81, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And they paid him a lot of money to write the script. He didn't want to direct, but he didn't want to write the script either. And the movie by all the accounts came in and it wasn't very good. So he stepped in and sort of directed the end of it. I'm credited, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a good movie. No. And he knows it. And he also knows that he's partly responsible for that. <laughs> he's like, it wasn't into it. I didn't want to do a sequel. Um, so, you know, he, he, he had a history of half-assing it when he, when he needed to. Well, I did, that comes to a movie that you and I can probably do a podcast on later by itself. It's Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which is the weirdest movie I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, it's 
because uh, it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It is it is a bizarre alien movie, kind of uh, cult yeah, cult cult movie. Yeah, and the it, it is did not direct, but the, you know he wrote and produced, and it is a bizarre. He wanted Halloween to be an anthology, and. Yeah. Yeah, and, and not keep it on Michael Myers. And of course, obviously it failed and then they ended up going back to Michael Myers later long after Carpenter had left the series. Um, but like I said, that you could, I could devote an entire podcast on, on Halloween 3. Um, a quote from uh, Mr. Carpenter recently, and this is, this is a probably a good place to kind of summarize John Carpenter. Um, he said he would like to direct another movie with Kurt Russell. Uh, he has not directed a film since The Ward in 2010. Um, he's only directed two movies since 2001, so 20 years, uh, two movies. Oh. And, but he would like to do one more movie with Kurt Russell. Now, if you're looking back at John Carpenter and you think, all right, he's been involved with the new reboot of Halloween. He's been doing the music. Uh, he's an executive producer. Uh, Halloween. Which that one in the series since the original, I think. Yes, I completely agree. And Halloween Kills is supposed to be coming out here soon. But I'm sure he yep. could do whatever he wanted with Blumhouse. I'm sure Blumhouse would be yep. like, we will write you a check for $10 million. You go out and make the movie they you would, want with Kurt Russell. I'm sure they would. They would turn, they would turn over the keys. Absolutely. And I hope he does. But you know, sometimes artists just run out, run out of stuff. Uh, the last podcast you and I did with Jimmy Page, and I think that's another artist mm -hmm. that just ran out of stuff. Um, and uh, and I think that's what we might be dealing with here. Um, so let me ask you this, Morty: what What are your three favorite John Carpenter films? Which is different than his three best. What are your three favorite? Um. The Thing, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, and They Live. Those are my three favorites. What are yours? The, they Live is your wrench there. Um, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to say The Thing and Halloween and Mouth of Madness are his three masterpieces. Uh -huh. So I'm going to pick my three favorites outside of those because okay. those are the obvious choices, right? I would say um, Vampires. Just yeah. great, gory fun. James yeah. Woods chewing scenery left and right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, big, big trouble in Little China because it's good. just fucking bonkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 uh, and um, probably Assault on Precinct 13 just because it's just brutal and visceral and just shows a lot of creativity in the action. Yeah, I, and if I had, when under that pretext, obviously his three masterpieces are are the ones that we talked about. Um, I have a soft soft spot for Prince of Darkness because it's just it has a, it creates a good atmosphere. Um, and I, I've got a soft spot yeah. for some of his other kind of lesser things. I mean, The Fog, like I said, is a good ghost story. You could find a good virtue in most Car Carpenter films. They're all well made. Um, some of them are worse than others. I wish that he had never made Escape from L.A. I just, 
It's that if you look, go back and see that. Well, now, what are your three least? Oh, least. Oh man, it's probably. Um, well, Escape from L.A. Um, definitely yeah. uh, Memoirs of the Visible Man. Oh. And uh, Ghost of Mars. Ghost of Mars is. Oh. What about you? Yeah, same. Those, those are genuinely terrible movies. <laughs> Jace, uh, but you, you realize, I mean, Ghost of Mars, I didn't touch on this, but that was supposed to be a Escape from Mars. <laughs> that's that's mm. ice ice uh, ice cubes character was supposed to be uh, was supposed to be uh, uh, Snake Plissken. Yeah, I would say Ghost of Mars is his Phantom Menace. It's like how could an artist have made this and Escape from New York? <laughs> I mean. It's bizarre. It, it's it. How did I? Uh, I, I look back and I saw I saw it again recently because I I I was like I haven't seen it for twenty years and oh my god it was just as bad as, as I remembered it. <laughs> so yeah, I was like no it could have possibly. You know, been you that no, it was. It's worse actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope if he does come back, I hope he gets to make the western that he never made. Right. He has said forever when I got into movies I wanted to make western. I kind of fell into the sci-fi horror thing. I really wanted to make Westerns and I would love if his last picture was a really awesome Western with Kurt Russell and he gets that out of his system and that it's a success for him. That's what I would wish for John Carpenter. In the, in, in the, just like kind of in the realm of Bone Tomahawk or something like that, you know, like a, a, a brutal yeah. but well-made See, story Western. Yeah. It would have been. Yeah. And done it with the John Carpenter cool, you know, because as I pointed out before, he's the coolest man to direct movies. I've never, I mean, uh, he still smokes. He carries himself like a rock star. He, he plays music. Uh, he, he is the rock star director. <laughs> and his interviews are hilarious because yeah. he's so cranky. He's so cranky. And so honest. <laughs> Like when they ask him about the Rob Zombie Halloween remakes, what he thinks about them, he'll say, well, I think I got a nice fat check for it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like about the executive producing? And he holds out his hand. He says, they put a nice fat check in my hand. That's <laughs> so, so cynical, but probably so true. He's saying the quiet part loud, basically. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. So, uh, well, uh, Magnus, this has been a, a fun time. Um, he and I will come back with another uh, good Gen X movie show and music show. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of things lined up, and everyone has been enjoying our uh, Smashing Pumpkins review of Sear. Uh, that's been great. You also enjoyed our Jimmy Page show. We're going to be doing more of those soon. Uh, we're going to have uh, one on Bob Dylan coming up, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, actually, I may do several on on Bob Dylan because there's a lot to go through here. So, um, uh-huh. yo, it's just, there's so much to it. Um, so anyway, thank you all for joining us on the latest Gen X movie show. We'll be back soon. Goodbye.